0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're going to look at Isaiah 53, as Dr. Neufeld continues his Easter series with a message entitled, The Penal Substitutionary Atonement. So let's join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: One of the great temptations of the present era is to stay clear of anything that smacks of controversy. Now, to be clear, there are a great many times when controversy must and should be avoided. Seeking controversy for the sake of controversy is hardly praiseworthy. Now, I say this because there are people who just like a good fight. But the Lord's servant must not quarrel, nor is it a good sign to be quarrelsome. But I also remember that it was Lyman Beecher who said, "'No great advance has been made in science, politics, or religion without controversy. And furthermore, I am reminded that controversy surrounded Jesus all of his life. His conflict eventually led to the cross. There is in our day a controversy about the nature of the cross. It's a controversy surrounding the words penal substitutionary atonement, or might I say the controversy is almost entirely around the word penal. There are those like myself who firmly believe that God the Father, the mighty creator, poured out onto Jesus, his son, the fury of his wrath as Jesus hung on the cross. But I know one seminary professor who taught that this doctrine is the most unfortunate doctrine ever to be taught in the North American church. He said that it has created untold harm. I know a number of other popular writers who have called this cosmic child abuse. One theologian said the idea of propitiation, that is, that the father offered his son as a bloody sacrifice. Well, he said that's an idea common in pagan religions, but foreign to the thought of the Old Testament and New Testament writers. Now, in response to that, I've gotta say, I, I do wonder which Bible has this theologian been reading? But what's behind these objections? Well, the argument against a penal atonement rests on one assumption and one only. Since God is love, it would be inconsistent with his character to show wrath against human beings. That's what they say. And and since that's so, it's also inconsistent that God should serve up his son as our substitute and pour out his wrath against him. To put it clearly, these people think we need a kinder, gentler God. Now, now please remember that I began by saying that a great temptation in our day is to avoid controversy at all cost. And there are some who still hold to penal substitutionary atonement of the cross of Jesus, but who have decided not to make it a big deal. After all, the issue raises controversy. And yet there are others, like, for instance, the Gettys, who sang such a marvelous song in Christ Alone. You know, in the middle of the second verse, the song speaks of Jesus, and it says, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Those are powerful words. Indeed, that song has become so popular that some argue that it's on its way to becoming the amazing grace of our generation. (laughs) And to that I say, men, may it be. But let's get back to the controversy one that, in Christ alone, partially inspired. I mean, recently, the hymnal committee of the Presbyterian Church USA requested that both Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, the writers of that song, give this hymnal committee the ability to change that one line. No longer should it read, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied in its place. They said it should read, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, both Getty and Townend refused to grant permission for such a change, and in consequence, that hymn was removed from that hymn book. The editor of the hymn book committee said, and I quote her, the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger would have a negative effect on our hymnals' ability to form the faith of coming generations. (laughs) Ha ha, there it is. If you believe in the penal substitutionary atonement, or if you believe that God's wrath was poured out because of sin, well, that's negative to your spiritual development. That's what they said. So where do we begin? You know, some would say, let's not talk about the wrath of God on the cross anymore. After all, this divides Christians. And others, like myself, would respond, let's talk even more about the wrath of God. For if we don't talk about it, we empty the cross of its power and meaning, leaving it nothing more than a hollowed piece of sentimental irrelevance. So let's start with the idea of God's wrath. Isn't this an upsetting view? Well, we could answer from a number of perspectives. We could start by looking at what the Bible actually says. Did you know that almost every book of the Bible, with the exception of three, maybe four, mention the wrath of God? I mean, start with Genesis. You're not long reading into that book. When we read, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and in consequence, God sends a flood to destroy all life on earth, with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals, of course, that were housed in the ark. Not long after, we have God visiting Babel and scattering the city. In Exodus, we have God visiting Egypt in his anger and and killing every firstborn in the land. But then later in the same book, when Israel, the, the ones saved from Egypt, construct a golden calf, God kills a number of the Israelites for their rebellion. Or consider Exodus 22, verse 24, that if Israel breaks God's laws and in this case, mistreats foreigners, well, the passage says, my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Or consider Leviticus and the laws of sacrifice. Or consider chapter 10, as anger breaks out from God against Nadab and Abihu, and they die before the Lord, and their father is forbidden from grieving, lest he also anger the Lord. Or let's go on to Numbers. Chapter 11, verse 33 says, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a great plague. Did you know that even the book of the Song of Solomon, that that love story between a man and a woman, mentions the anger of God? Yeah, it does. It's in chapter 8, verse 6. Go and check it out. Uh, and yet, as I can almost hear someone saying, you know, that's the Old Testament. As if that God doesn't exist anymore, or as if that God is an unfortunate idea. Look, the real problem is that the New Testament is no different. Listen to our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Prince of Love, say in Matthew 5:29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. That is to say, no one spoke about hell more than Jesus. And of course, the book of Romans, which presents us with Christianity 101, begins with a presentation of the gospel with these words, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, of course, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, tells us that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And, of course, the New Testament book of Hebrews warns us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All of that to say, if the editor of that hymnal thinks that saying the wrath of God is satisfied on the cross is harmful to the spirituality of the next generation, well, she might as well have said that reading the Bible is harmful to the spirituality of the next generation. And if you don't believe the wrath of God is appropriate, let me put it plainly, you don't believe in the God that is presented from Genesis to Revelation. You're looking for a different God than the God of the Bible. Now, I know that there are some who have been abused by an angry parent who who are going to shudder and wonder, you know, how can that be? But the wrath of God as described in the Bible is not a picture of a God whose whose emotions are out of control and then gets wildly furious. God's wrath is a settled anger, and it's linked to God's holiness. God's wrath means that God intensely hates sin and unrighteousness. Imagine two men living next to a concentration camp in which the stench of burning bodies rises into the air, and it becomes apparent that innocent men and women are being murdered and their bodies are on a conveyor belt and are dumped into an oven so that all trace of them are removed. This is an outrage. One man says, you know, it's important here that we just remember that love wins out, keeps a calm demeanor, and he continues to smile. But the other man is intensely angry. He links in with an underground and passes information to an invading army. He says, it is time that we smash this evil to bits. So I ask you, which man is loving? I mean, to argue that God should not be filled with wrath, as Paul says in Romans, for all the ungodliness and unrighteousness that is here in this world, is to portray a God who is unrighteous himself and unloving himself. No the controversy over penal substitutionary atonement is a controversy that is worth having.
0: The Gospel of John challenges a new generation to re-examine what it means to live in genuine faith, to live based on the truths Jesus taught. And Dr. Newfeld begins volume two of his study on the Gospel of John called, Why Follow Jesus? It calls us to examine our hearts and to ask, why should I follow Jesus? That question drives this ministry, a question that demands an answer. This month, search out that question for yourself as you listen. But also, we invite you to have a copy of Why Follow Jesus on CD for free. And as an added bonus, request a copy in print of the Gospel of John for yourself or to pass on to someone asking questions about Jesus. So call today and request Why Follow Jesus And as an added bonus, receive a copy of the Gospel of John all for free by simply calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I and my traveling companions, leaders of Back to the Bible, had just arrived in India. We were picked up in the car by a pastor who had graciously offered to take us to all our appointments. Well, that was wonderful, but we barely settled into the car when he turned to me and said, you know, I want to know about the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Do you think Jesus bore the anger of the Father on the cross? I responded by saying, well, if he didn't, then the anger of God still rests on you. You see, listen to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let me say that again. When we speak of God's wrath on the human race, We're not describing a God who's out of control. Rather, we're speaking of a settled, determined aspect of God's nature in which he will not leave sin unpunished. When the Bible says that we are children of wrath by nature, it means that the wages of sin are death. Now then, what of the love of God? Is there not tenderness and concern and kindness and mercy and grace to be found in God? Should I fear God? Shouldn't it be better that I simply run to him like child? Well, let's remember John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, what, perish. Now, I could stop here, but listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But then that very same verse says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so Jesus is love. It's true for he is the difference between condemnation and mercy. So let's now talk about the wrath of God at the cross of Jesus. Where do we begin? Let's start with the Garden of Gethsemane. You're gonna remember that Jesus told his disciples that his soul was sorrowful to the point of death. He wanted them to pray with him to stay awake so that in a small way they might walk this path with him. But of course they couldn't and then Jesus began to pray. Matthew 26 verse 39 has him praying, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This cup. Which cup? Here's a little secret in understanding Jesus. He hardly said a thing without some reference to the Scriptures or to the First Testament. And when he earnestly asked the Father to take the cup from him, we might well ask, what is so horrible about that cup? You know, there are at least two pertinent references to the cup that Jesus was referring to in his prayer. And the first comes from Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. See, the day of judgment was at hand, says Jeremiah, and the nations will drink the cup of the Lord's wrath. And a second reference comes from Isaiah 51. This passage is about God's judgment of Jerusalem and the reality that God will send the Babylonians to destroy the city. And verse 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. In other words, I, the Lord, have made you drink of the cup of your own destruction at my hands. Then on down to verse 22, in which wrath is replaced with a promise of mercy. So let's listen. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. (laughs) Well now, if the cup is taken from God's people, where did it go? You know, in Gethsemane, Jesus knew that it had been given to him. The agony of Jesus as he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane is the agony of having been given the cup of the Lord's anger. It is not the agony of physical suffering that so shocked Jesus' soul. It is the cup of the Lord's wrath that led him to sweat drops of blood. Matthew 27, 46 records one of Jesus' words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, those words can't mean that Jesus believed that God had forsaken him in the sense that he is now a man abandoned by God. Hebrews 12, 2 says he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. See, Jesus knew that as he prayed in John 17, that in his death, God was glorified. He knew that his sacrifice was pleasing to God and that he would rise and that he would receive a name above every name. So what then did those words mean? Well, it certainly can't mean, God, why have you allowed wicked men to nail me to this cross? See, Mark 10.45 records Jesus as saying a long ways before the cross. The Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus always knew that he had come for the cross. He knew it was his mission. Now, the words of being forsaken by God, as with everything else that Jesus said, came from the First Testament, and in this case, from Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest." Now, the context of that psalm is not that, you know, in that case, David was abandoned by God, but rather God had not moved to save David in the present hour. That's to say, why have you left me so long without deliverance? Why so long? How long will this go on? And I love what Wayne Grudem says about this as it relates to Jesus. In his human consciousness, Grudem writes, Jesus probably did not know how long his suffering would take. Yet the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute or two or ten. When would it end? And so as hour after dreaded hour went on, Jesus suffered in a way that we can never imagine. Men gathered around him and mocked him. They devoured him with their insults. Christ's heart melted like wax, his strength was dried up, and yet the Father did not come to his aid. Indeed, as Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 4, he was smitten by God. That's what Isaiah says. In verse 6, Isaiah says, Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or listen to Isaiah 53, verse 10, and tremble, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I'm sorry, did you miss that? It was the will of the one true living God to crush his son on the cross. God has willed it. And so it was done. And so as hour after terrifying hour dragged on, as Jesus, our sin substitute, hung suffering for the sins of the world, he cried out, how long? Why have you forsaken me? And yet one thing must not be forgotten. While he hung bleeding and dying, Jesus was the object of the Father's delight. Isaiah said of Jesus, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here hung the Son, displaying the righteousness of God in a way that the eternal suffering of the entire human race could never display God's righteous judgment of sin. For in this place, the cross, God both displayed his displeasure with sin and his love of the human race. And so even while the Father poured out his wrath on the Son, he held the Son as the highest joy. The Father glorified the Son, even as the Son glorified the Father. For the Son, in His suffering, as Paul would say in Romans 3, demonstrated the righteousness of God. No, no, this is not child abuse. This is a display both of the holiness and of the love of God. This alone is the only place in all creation where both holiness and love meet. This is a precious place, the cross of our Lord. See, I began about controversy, and I need to say it again. To disagree on the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus is, is not a minor thing. This is a controversy worth having. I argue we should not find middle ground here. We should not look for compromise. Rather, I argue that we should build a greater wedge, a greater divide, a, a greater point of disagreement than we have in the past. This doctrine, that the Son paid for the sins of the world, suffering wrath For our sins, this is central to the gospel. To deny this is to hollow out the cross and to empty it out and to empty out the story of our salvation. Deny this and you have denied both the Father and the Son. The cross is God's invitation. Abandon all sense of self-righteousness and fly to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was led to the slaughter, who was crushed for your iniquities and pierced for your transgressions. Rejoice,
0: for by his wounds you have been healed. John, I'm, I'm so glad you you touched on this subject today, the, the whole idea of the wrath of God, because there's a whole movement with, that would deny the wrath. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's just this this idea that uh, the need for blood to be shed, the need for an atonement to be given, um, that the Father handed the Son the cup of, of His wrath, and the Son drained that cup to its dregs. I mean, all of that stuff seems... Well, I'm gonna say that the problem with this doctrine is it's an exclusive doctrine. Uh, Whereas if we can present another view of God, we can be more inclusive. And so we no longer have to say, Christ alone is the way unto salvation. I think that's what's at issue here. Um, And I wanna say also, I I don't think that we should slow down our approach on this. We, We should say it more often than we've ever
0: said it before. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here I'm um, Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.
2: It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfield. experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh-Again's own Phil Callaway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.